Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, picking the next Supreme Court Justice. And Richard, we talked at length a few weeks ago about the death of Antonin Scalia. What we didn't talk about much in that conversation was his successor. So let me start here. There's obviously – there's kind of this raw political element to the Republicans in the Senate saying that they won't even give a hearing to anyone that President Obama nominates. Let's take that part as a given. But if we put that to one side, is there a principled justification? To your mind, is there a good reason that this choice should be denied to President Obama when he's got a little less than a year left in his administration? Well, I mean, it's a matter of first principle. The common democratic line is that the president serves for four years, not for three, and so therefore he's entitled to make a nomination. Um, of course, he can always do that, and in fact, when he published something on SCOTUS, he sort of blurred the issue and said he had the right to appoint somebody and sort of eluded out the stuff about the advice and consent of the Senate. So I think it's perfectly clear for him to put anybody forward. The question is then what happens on the other side? Well, if it's a matter of constitutional duty, I think the answer answer is there is none, at least in any obvious case. I just might make by way of comparison that uh, uh, Governor Christie, one of my least favorite governors at this point, has yet made yet another attempt to get somebody to fill a seat for the New Jersey Supreme Court. And the previous time this candidate gave forward, the Democrats just flatly refused to give him a hearing. No explanations at. And the same thing was true with respect to the Democrats when the Republicans put up a number of very smart people in 2002, like Miguel Estrada, uh, where they were refused to give him a hearing for at least a year and the sole explanation for it was that he was too qualified, might make a good impression and when he put on the uh, circuit court might well become a potential Supreme Court nominee. And that was done in the second year of a presidency or the first year of a presidency. So I, I think in effect that the fourth year issue drops out. What's happened is we now have a kind of tit-for-tat intransigence between the two parties. Uh, the Democrats started this game at the lower courts. Um, in, in, the, in 2001, 2002, the Republicans did not play that game with either the Breyer or the Ginsburg nomination. And then when we got to the Alito nomination and to the Roberts nomination, uh, there certainly was scent of a filibuster. And in fact, the president himself sort of announced that having looked at his tea leaves and his sense of empathy could not bring himself to support a vote for Alito. That's fine. But he also was in favor of a filibuster. So I, I think, in effect, what comes around goes around. And the reasons why the Republicans will play hardball is if they think it's in their own interest, there's no sense of comedy or responsibility that will lead them to believe that the uh, Democrats would reciprocate if and when the uh, tables turn out to be um, turn. Uh, so what you do is you have here a constitution that desperately cries out for a level of cordiality between the parties. That's been ruptured and it's been ruptured on both sides, more the Democrats than the Republicans. And so the Republicans then ask the question, which I think is a fair one, uh, you know, uh, how is it going to play out if we decide to go ad hoc and give some people hearings and some people not? Well, let, let me interject there and ask you another question about how this could play out. You and I are talking on the day after Super Tuesday, a day where it looked increasingly like Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump may be the presidential nominees of the two major parties. Neither one probably a terribly comforting prospect when it comes to the kinds of justices the most conservatives 
would want on the court. Is there a point at which they have to start thinking about dealing with the devil that they know in President Obama rather than the devil that they don't? Uh, they being the Republicans. They being I the mean, Republicans in the Senate. Yeah, I mean I think in effect that there's a lot of sense to that, which is why it is on strategic questions you always find radical divisions within people who have common ideological views. I mean uh, their attitude is the president says that he's going to look for somebody who when the law is clear is going to apply it clearly, but when there's not, he wants them to take into account the social justice kinds of cases. Well, he said exactly the same thing about Sotomayor and Kagan, and the Republican answer, which I think is perfectly sensible, on this is the number of cases in which stuff is very clear is virtually none and that means that the Supreme Court is going to get the cases in which there turns out to be a lot of dispute and they're always going to come out my way. One of the things I think that the Republicans note with a certain degree of truth in it is when it comes to major cases like the um, health care mandates and so forth, uh, the four liberal judges is vote as a phalanx. There's not a single one of them who deviates on any sort of major issue. Uh, whereas on the conservative side the block of five, it's easy, possible to pick off Justice Roberts or the Chief Justice to pick off Justice Kennedy and so forth. And sometimes they fragment on other issues. And so they don't regard five as being essentially a, a built-in majority. And frankly, I think that's all to the good. I would be very regretful of the Republican Party and of the Republican-type nominees if essentially they had only lockstep thinking. And you know, I don't think it's to the credit of the Democrats that that's the way in which they work. So their attitude is, you know, uh, we want to hold the line. The problem that they face is that if, in fact, they don't make a deal now, Hillary Clinton gets nominated, which I think is, what, uh, 85 to 90 percent certainty. Uh, uh, if she goes against Donald Trump, I think her chances of winning are about um, – 80 or 75 percent. I wouldn't rate it higher than that. Uh, so what they have to do is then face the consequence. If they don't sort of try to cut a bargain now when there's some uncertainty, she becomes president and there may well be a Democratic Senate, at which point, you know, bar the door, you're either talking filibuster, which will cost the Republicans very dearly if it's adamant, or you're talking about a more liberal nominee than you would otherwise get. Now, how does one start to do these calculations? very difficult. There are many people who said that if we trusted Mitch McConnell to be a hardliner, uh, we would be willing to have the individual hearing. But we think once somebody gets up there who's remotely credible, he will basically wave down the objection and the person will squeak through. So it's not only Republicans against Democrats. There are conservative Republicans against centrist Republicans. This thing is a game of chess with lots of different factions that combine and recombine. And, you know, it's very difficult for anyone at this stage to figure out what's going on on, especially since we have, at least at the time of this broadcast, no identification of who the candidate or the possible candidates are. Richard, President Obama has said in the past that he likes the example of someone like Earl Warren, someone who served in elected office prior to being on the court. We saw the governor of Nevada's name floated about a week ago. He said he, he won't accept any nomination. In a slightly different vein, Justice Scalia, not long before his death in the Obergefell dissent, pointed out that there's also – there's a certain cultural sameness about the court's makeup. It's, it's almost all coastal from elite law schools, judges off of lower federal courts, uh, all for that matter either Jewish or Catholic actually at the moment. Does the Supreme Court across any of those variables need some measure of diversity that it currently doesn't have? Well, look, I mean it's important to put the uh, Scalia um, comments in, in perspective. What he said is if in fact this was a 
court, which was roughly speaking an originalist court, in which everybody poured over the text, put aside their political predilections and their desires, and simply tried to call balls and strikes, to use the famous metaphor, he would care less about the local identification. Uh, but as far as he's concerned, uh, that's not what we have going on today. He has used the term, I think it's provocative and maybe overstated, it's a Kulturkampf, which is German for a cultural war between the two sides. And when he says when what you're having is a cultural war, you don't want the war to be between Harvard and Yale, Princeton and Yale, or whatever it is. You want to get people in that cultural war who come from a different part of the mix. And, you know, I think, in effect, the ability of putting the sort of the pure legal stuff back into the bottle is no better than stuffing in all the um, escaped animals or whatever it was from Pandora's box. You know, they're, they're out. They're not going back in there. You can't put the genie in the bottle. So at this particular point, I think that's true. Now, last time around, twice in fact, he passed over Diane Wood, who was from the University of Texas and taught at the University of Chicago on the Seventh Circuit. She's a wonderfully qualified judge, in my judgment, even though she's a quote-unquote Democrat. You know, if he were to appoint somebody like that, turning 66 in July, in fact, on Independence Day, well, the Republicans might want to bite because Orrin Hatch, for example, was very anxious to see her put on the circuit court. So, you know, fine. And that gives you some kind of diversity. As far as Earl Warren is going, I mean, you know, it's a real mixed bag. Uh, if you remember, Eisenhower put him on and then said it was the biggest damn fool mistake I ever made. I think that's a rather overstatement about uh, whether the situation was right or wrong. Uh, but if you're talking about Warren, you're talking about a man who is a potential Republican nominee for the presidencies in 1948. He was the attorney general in California in charge, I might add, of internment back during the uh, Second World War. He was chosen governor in 1946. I think he was on both the Democratic and Republican ticket. Uh, there's nobody out there who has any semblance of legal ability who has that kind of polished resume. You don't get that in this kind of herky-jerky era. And so I think that class of people is essentially over. So you're going to have to go to somebody who's a relative unknown. And, you know, the Republicans are going to say, you have private information about this guy. To me, it's a pig in the poke. And they will start to become extremely skeptical. In the speculation that's attended how President Obama could go about this in a fashion that's clever beyond the idea of appointing a Republican like Sandoval, one of the other things that some pundits have bandied about is the idea of a liberal originalist. Now, a lot of our listeners may think of originalism as the exclusive province of the right. In your judgment, Richard, are originalism and progressivism compatible? Um, no. Um, I understand there are many people who call themselves to be living originalists, uh, but somehow or other, whenever the Constitution lives, it always drifts to the left. I mean, Jack Balkan is the leading defender of that type of situation, and you know he thinks that living originalism manages to get you wicked in Filburn, the case which says you're an interstate commerce when you feed your own wheat to your own cows, um, out of a commerce clause where in 1816 the battle was whether or not uh, you were engaged in interstate commerce when you had a journey that extended into the interior of the state which was the precise question asked in the case of Gibbons and Ogden. I think what happens is there is certainly a form of originalism that makes perfectly good sense, but nobody has ever done it. It says that Congress shall regulate or has the power to regulate commerce amongst the seven states with foreign nations and so forth. Well, that means in effect that when you start talking about um, steamboats instead of sailing boats and railroads instead of stagecoaches, if they're engaged in interstate commerce, of course, they're covered. But you, know, you don't have to change the text for that. It's perfectly there. 
Uh, but, you know, what they're doing is something very different. So to give you an example, and this is a real case, in the Schechter case in 1935, Justice Hughes solemnly announced correctly, in my view, uh, that uh, spoiled or rotten chickens were shipped in interstate commerce when they went from New Jersey into New York. But once they got off that interstate thing or loaded onto local trucks, they were then in local commerce. That's essentially exactly the line that our friend um, Marshall did back in 1824. And the point is there's no difference between a motorized vehicle and a one-horse dray. Uh, But within two years, all of a sudden, the country had changed so much that everything was in interstate commerce and we no longer worried about these various legs in the journeys. If that's living originalism, then it's something of a joke. Um, uh, The number of cases in which you can find this are are not empty, uh, but it's a rather different problem. Uh, So, for example, if you look at the Constitution, Uh, There are certain issues that become much more important today than they were in earlier times. So uh, the leading candidate for that is the doctrine of unconstitutional conditions. What can the state or the federal government tell an individual what it is that they can and cannot do? So can the federal government come up and say, you know, you want to ride on our public highways, you got to waive your Fourth Amendment rights. You want to ship goods in interstate commerce, uh, you can't use child labor. Um, These questions are amongst the very hardest, and there is zero textual evidence one way or another about how they are to be decided. So a living originalist is going to try and figure out what you do. Now, if you're like me, who essentially believes in classical government or classical liberal government, uh, the living originalist tries to figure out how you put all the appropriate constraints on government permits and licenses and grants that you would want to put on the direct exercise of power, allowing for the fact that the government has to have some management prerogative in the way in which it runs its own business. If you're a living originalist, what happens is all of this becomes rational basis test, so any condition is just fine, so long as it is that a branch of the political government or more than one branches are in favor. So I essentially think it's very dubious to take that position. It's not that you want to ignore evolution in respect to legal doctrine. It's the question of who's doing it. And if it turns out to be the progressives, what happens is you will always end up with the New Deal state, which is the complete antithesis of the much more guarded, enumerated powers, limited rights government that you had back in 1787. And that lasted 80%, 85% through 1937. Final question that I'll put to you, Richard. Do the dynamics that now come along with a vacancy on the Supreme Court, both the political drama but also justices sort of waiting out presidents for their retirement, do those dynamics suggest that we would be better off with set terms for justices rather than lifetime appointments? I'm going to basically appoint you as the head of a committee of one to introduce that reform. (laughs) I have been of that position for years now and I actually wrote it up about – um, some years ago in a book on the particular subject. Uh, uh, and, you know, to me, the, the the argument is absolutely overwhelming in favor of some degree of term limits. Uh, the point about this is, is the current rule is one which says you serve during good behavior, which means if there's not bribery or rape or some kind of truly offensive sort of statement, you stay until you are forced off by manifest incompetence or politically you decide to leave. Uh, that means that some people stay much too long and you don't get the overturn. If you look at state courts, most of them have a 70-year retirement. Um, I'm not a wild fan of that, although there is a political check with re-election. But 18 years seems to me to be long enough to make an impact and short enough so that you don't have to have these Armageddon fights. And it means that the presidency um, will, each of them will have at least two appointments, maybe a third in the case of death or something going on there. And you'll get an orderly 
fundamentally change in the way in which people work. So yes, I'm very much in favor of it. In fact, one of the courses in constitutional law that I would like to teach is mistakes in the original constitutional design. And this one is pretty hard. I would do the same thing for the lower courts, but it doesn't matter nearly as much. uh, Because essentially, if you want to count the political calculus on this, essentially both parties would throw in everything on lower court nominations if they could secure that their guys happen to take over the Supreme Court. And make no mistake about it, there will be more fuss over the Supreme Court nominee in the next six months, perhaps even a year, than there were over all the appellate and all the district court judges in the United States. Uh, It is a dangerous situation. The Supreme Court becomes top-happy, and it's a progressive problem. If you have really unlimited federal jurisdiction over just about everything and a series of constitutional guarantees that somehow they're either too broad or too narrow, it means that the political agendas of the courts are going to be extremely large and everybody knows that no sort of principled legal doctrine is going to be able to solve them one way or another. And that, I think, was prophetic about Justice Scalia. Now, this is not to say that I agreed with him on everything. We could do a show um, in which I said major doctrinal mistakes of Antonin Scalia. Uh, But this was not one of them. He really did sense that the change in the ebb and flow on the courts uh, was something which would essentially have very dire institutional consequences. And it's a tragic thing that it's his death which actually made that portrait most vivid. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.